Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I'm calling in from the snowy, frigid slopes of Park City, Utah, where this year's Sundance Film Festival is currently unfolding. Throughout the festival, I will be rallying the best critics in town to debate and discuss each day's new premieres. So follow along on the Film Comment podcast and the Film Comment letter for roundtable discussions, interviews, dispatches, and more. It is day four at Sundance, which means it is day four of uh, podcasting at Sundance for me. And I have with me today two great friends, both from Brooklyn. So it's that thing of just you go all over the world to festivals and then you see people who live like 20 minutes away from you. But these are two very smart guests that I'm thrilled to have on today's pod. Uh, Vadim, why don't you introduce yourself first? Hello, I'm Vadim Razov, Director of Editorial Operations at Filmmaker Magazine. And me, I'm Dan Sullivan. Uh, I'm a programmer at Film at Lincoln Center and a, at this point, I guess I'd say an occasional contributor to Film Comment. How are you both feeling? Vadim, you were just saying we are at the exact midpoint of the festival. Any halfway feelings? Thoughts, uh, reflections, macro extrapolation. I think I think people coming in were expecting it to be like a little bit more deserted than I think it's turned out to be. I think attendance is not quite as rock bottom as expected, but obviously still lower than would be yeah. desired because people are getting added to RSVP lists for things they never asked for and so on and so forth. So um, I think coming in, expectations were a little more dire than has proven. Like there are turns out some movies to watch that are not entirely horrible on paper. It was bleak, experientially. Uh, Park City remains a, 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 an environment full of challenges. A hellscape, if um, I may. It is, uh, it is very unfortunate, perhaps, that uh, we have decided to uh, kick off, as it were, or presumptively, the American Independent Film Year in January in Utah on the slopes because Robert Redford fell in love with skiing 50 years ago. Cancel Robert Redford for this choice in particular. I will also say that this year's bumpers are um, extremely tedious, but not as bad as some of the ones in years past. Vadim always has a bumper comment. We can trust Vadim for his bumper criticism. I, I, well, I, I'll just... The only thing I'll say uh, uh, in, in support of my, my esteemed colleague... Uh, Vadim the dream is that um is that uh that bumper is the or the land acknowledgement bumper is pretty rich considering who gives this festival money the like eco messaging of it is uh yeah who gives this festival money oh well you can talk about that in the next episode <laughs> <laughs> okay i uh, in in the spirit uh, i would like to air a grievance unrelated sort of not overly related to the movies themselves but actually quite related the blurbs this is a complaint I have at many festivals. Uh, it's not necessarily specific to Sundance, but somehow the blurb make blurbs make me want to not watch any of the movies. And then I have sort of, you know, watched some of those movies and they've turned out to be wonderful. I mean, I've seen some actually wonderful movies here in the last few days and they just surprise me by how much like more complex they are than the blurbs kind of or the synopses um suggest um so this is my 
common grievance. common festival problem. I, I feel know, like. I know. Pe- festivals really need to invest more in <laughs> in the blurb writers. Yeah. Um. All right. So let's yeah. dig into a new crop of movies. Yeah. If uh, I, if I may, I just want yeah. to jump in to say that I just blew into town yesterday, and I've I've uh, I've almost certainly <laughs> seen uh seen uh many fewer films than than YouTube, but I. I'm I'm happy to uh, contribute as I can and and uh, you know just kind of verify that all of your opinions are correct and perhaps we should do a quick uh, count to date for I believe I've seen eleven features so far. I think I've also seen eleven. I was counting this morning, maybe or maybe twelve. I don't know. I'm okay. I'm not really keeping track. Maybe twelve on my part. Okay, me I've I've been here for like. 20 hours and <laughs> i've had, seen you had I, other films at pre-screenings right yeah yeah, yeah. I, so i've seen three films since i got here and i uh and you know a, a smattering of others in the in the run-up yeah well now that we're past the you know macro comments statistics let's get into the movies themselves so vadim you and i uh saw a movie a kind of smaller unexpected movie i would call it called fremont by babak jalali uh, an Iranian filmmaker, and I heard that you were a fan. Word on the street is Vadim Rozov likes Fremont. Oh well, yeah. So the one dispatch that I've published today it kicks off with Fremont. Uh, Fremont is a nice movie. Fremont, you know what? Oh my god! It sounds really? more, it sounds more pejorative than it is. I mean it nice. Does. I'm I mean nice in the non like it's. I mean it in the actual sense of the word. The same way that if I use the word curious. You could say maybe I mean something pejorative, but I might actually mean curious. Would you say it was well done? Uh, I would actually say well done. We're get we're getting so. Let's go back for a second. Is it important? No, that would be <laughs> no. But that's a high burden to place, isn't it? Um, I I, I kind of wrote in my review to kick it off that like when I felt like when I was growing up, like in you know like the early aughts, there were so many of these kinds of movies that were like post dramish charismaki, like quirky little character studies. And I, I have to say, I actually bristled a little bit when I saw a review by that I suppose will go unnamed, where the writer actually compared this more to like Sundance movies, you know, like those kinds of quirky character studies. And I thought, well, it's a little bit better than that. It's closer to like the, you know, that is, is filmed in nice looking black and white, which is kind of unusual with digital for whatever reason. And it's like, is um, a non over egged low key, but not too demonstratively low key film about an Afghani um, translator who's... Afghan, as she says uh, yes. in the movie, yes. corrects uh, an American who calls her an Afghanistani. Yeah, he does. And uh, now I can play uh, the role of the guy from The Bear who's in the movie. Yep. Um, I don't know. Like, it was, it was, this is a perfectly fine... The, no, there's no, no, finish a, the plot. The, the plot is, is very low-key. As you know, there's this... Uh, she's this refugee, and she works at a fortune cookie factory in San Francisco. And she has nightmares and goes to a psychiatrist to try to get some sleeping pills. And uh, I suppose the background of the movie is that she craves love and uh, is reluctant to admit to herself that she has PTSD. <laughs> that's, and that's, but there's, you know, most of the movie is a series of conversations between her and like four or five other people just alternating over and over again. It's funny. It's droll. It is the fourth feature film by this gentleman. So the previous three films have premiered at other reputable festivals, Rotterdam, Berlin. I haven't seen them. I was actually talking with a friend who said this sounds like he has apparently like a longstanding fascination with um, Afghan, the Afghan people and has made a previous short that touches upon some of these like other questions of resettlement and, and translation and trauma. Um, it, is a, it is a nice film. It is a refreshing film to see in the context of being here. It is made with like thought and care and like it does things like use framing for like emphasis. So, like it's funny when he cuts you know, like there's like actual timing things involved. It is a lot of burden to put on the film to say that it is above and beyond, right? Like 
because above and beyond what i don't know like i think about um like a really really good charismaki movie which can be like a kind of transcendent experience yeah <laughs> and like this is and this is and this is why he's like this is a well-made film yeah this is a film that doesn't actually try too hard to be low-key which is often another big trap so it's got a lot going for it but I do feel a little unfortunate being like, this is the best thing I've seen at the festival so far because it's, it's, it's the only probably movie of that kind that's slotted here that I'm aware of at this time. You know, the thing about like, you know, there's one type of each kind of micro genre at Sundance and this is, and this is an above average example of that kind of thing. But there are literally hundreds and hundreds of movies like this that have been made over the last 40 years. And to slot this in the next category, you know, which is uh, putatively um, boundary-pushing uh, work that's going to shape the future of American cinema, s- suggests such a total lack of knowledge of like the broader context of world cinema yeah. that is a little bit shocking and is not something that the film itself should be answerable for in any way. But it is wild to have it positioned that way here, and and you know, kind of points back to the <laughs> usual questions of like, what is Sundance's relationship to like the world? Yeah, and I think it is a disservice to the movie because, like you're saying, it places a burden on the movie that it should not bear uh you know that someone who ex- has a certain expectation from the next section at least on you know how it's described on paper um may be disappointed with how fairly conventional it is and conventional in the sense of it be belonging to a genre and a type of movie that's existed for a while. And, and an eminently pleasant genre and one yeah, that I'm yeah, happy yeah. to revisit by you know etc yeah. etc. Yeah, I mean I I felt kind of the same way I will say that for the first 30 minutes, I was on the precipice of annoyance because it did seem familiarly quirky and the drollness, it, it there was a f- flattening element. Obviously, that's what deadpan does. You know, there's a kind of flat affect and, you know, that sometimes works because of the irony or, you know, the subject matter, how it contrasts with the affect. And... um I I couldn't quite place my finger on it, but there was something that kind of troubled me about this character and her repressed trauma. There was something very obvious about the way in which that was being channeled through this, you know, deadpan veneer. Um, Just, it, it just felt like a little too easy. And Karas Maki has done this, right? He's made films like, um, I'm forgetting the name of the last Le Havre one. No, no, the last one. Um, the Others. Yeah, he's he's made films like the Le Havre and The Other Side, which are about questions of immigration and employ a similar kind of like flat but absurd and quirky and heartwarming um, style. But I think that the, there is a, like you were saying, there's something transcendent. There's some some kind of sincerity to those movies, but also a genuine sense of idiosyncrasy idiosyncrasy you know there's something unpredictable even when there is this um this style that feels recognizable and I wasn't quite sure I got that from this movie that being said god I guess I'm coming to it's a nice movie as well but no I think that there is there are actually moments of real grace in this movie that took me by surprise um for a little bit more background on the character she worked as a translator in Afghanistan and, you know, was part of the uh, people, was part of the refugees who were evacuated during the Taliban takeover. And she kind of talks about these experiences during therapy sessions with Greg Turkington, who plays uh, the therapist. Can I ask how you feel about Greg Turkington's presence in this movie? 
because I, I think I heard some complaining that he's actually or that mm-hmm. one review that I read was just like he because so many of the the cast is like first time non professional performers yeah. that I think it might feel to people like he really sticks out and in, in, or do you think he meshed I think I thought he was actually perfectly I did, fine I I thought he was great the person who I thought stuck out was Jeremy Allen White mm-hmm. the guy from the Bear who appears in the last third of the movie in a kind of that in a surprising cameo that is to me like annoyingly quirky and annoyingly downplayed in a way that feels very labored but greg turkington was a very light presence i mean he plays this therapist and they're having these conversations about ptsd but there's something very unassuming about him it doesn't feel gimmicky at all and i i loved that there's also like random cameos from a lot of other people boots riley appears in a scene uh you know because i guess this is also kind of um yeah california uh Bay I mean, Area. also specifically one of the producers george rush is also a producer on sorry to bother you so okay a, that certain, makes sense. a certain number of calling in of favors presumably. right is is visible here um but yeah so she she's she used to be a translator and there's kind of questions about survivor's guilt but also her relationship with language here and um, the the part that I really liked is that she becomes, she got, gets this job as the writer of fortunes. And there's this moment where she does something. I kind of don't want to spoil it, but she kind of uses that job to get out her feelings about the world in kind of an unconventional way. And the owner of the factory, this Chinese immigrant, finds out. And he responds with such tenderness. I mean, she basically kind of does something you know, that she shouldn't do in her job. Uh, but he recognizes the sense of loneliness that's driving her. And then they have this exchange where he brings out a globe and he tells her that China and Afghanistan share borders, which means that they're, there's they have a bond, you know. And there are these moments of real tenderness that I was quite taken with. There's also a, a very darkly funny twist at the end that is a pretty funny satire on like the on corporate relations even amongst for instance immigrants you know the she works at a factory run by chinese immigrants and and how like the worker boss relationship can sometimes be really tender and you know can be rooted in solidarity and at other times can just be you know capitalist brusqueness and and kind of indifference so i thought it like touched upon those notes quite well, but it does, like Vadim was saying, have, there's a sense of, you know, been there, done that to it. Um, or we could say tradition if we were feeling generous. I mean, I keep, you know, it keeps going <laughs> true, back and true, forth that's on this. True. Or homage. I mean, you could call it. An, Values of classical cinema, you know, like whatever. Yeah, like he's, a, he's playing within a tradition that he's yes. familiar with and clearly loves and is kind of infusing a, a distinctly new plot and character into it and uh i should add that the protagonist is played by an uh, the actor is an actual afghan refugee who used to be a translator so there is that element of you know docufiction to it perhaps so that's fremont uh vadim you saw another film that i'm actually really excited to see i haven't seen it yet which is gush by fox maxi which is one of the three new frontier features do you want to talk about that absolutely i got up at 7 50 7 30 in the morning to to go see this so we should we should we should specify that there are you know I, I've, I've noticed in my conversations around the festival with people the vast majority of the people attending here have no idea that there's a new frontier section 
Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, and that doesn't make it easy to get to those either. <laughs> no. Um, so so uh, sometime last year, they said we're shutting down this section, and then they decided to bring it back in a kind of unclear way. And there are no P&I screenings for any of the three films that have been selected. And uh, one of them, uh, which you guys are going to discuss in a bit, actually had its premiere in Salt Lake City. All this to say, you know, if, I think it's not cool that Fox Maxi's movie showed for a second time at 8.30 in the morning at the Egyptian. Uh, Dan had mentioned earlier the uh, the land acknowledgement, um, which is which is uh, very of the moment. And there's a kind of uh, lack of follow through here when you uh, marginalize one of your native uh, filmmakers who has gone through one of Sundance's own programs and, and, and um, put it there. Yeah. Um, Fox Maxi is kind of, I think, uh, for people who have the chance to go to the larger film festivals and watch the experimental short film programs has become a real staple of the last few years. She's kind of a pandemic emergent filmmaker. And I mentioned this on our first podcast, but those who actually want to check out some of her shorts, they are streaming online for free on the Media City Film Festival website until January 30. So, oh, very cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, all of the shorts are kind of the same in a certain sense. Like they're very quickly rapidly edited for a, a decade's worth of material that she shot. Um, there's a lot of messing around. I mean, it's just so rapid. And so this movie, in a sense, is exactly that, but twice as long. No complaints. Uh, uh, I kind of danced around in my reviews, like, so what does Fox Maxi want? Um, and, you know, there's some there's some degree of difference from her previous work in that an, an element that's not present this time is um, uh, footage of protesting from Standing Rock or other mm. places. That, I mean, what is Gush about i know that's a complex question but if you could provide some kind of well so i mean to to speak to the question of of capsules and and what they do or don't give us um i don't know i think i think i think a very i i think of it as a kind of diary film Mm -hmm. um and and the subjects are variously um her friends partying and uh self-care uh more or less in that order um, so like I said, like an element that's normally present is, is the explicit foregrounding of native identity and protest. That's really pretty implicit here in, um, you know, who a lot of her on-screen presences are, but it's not explicitly foregrounded. Um, beyond that, I, I don't think I would care to hazard a guess as to what it's about. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's about these repeated recurring things. It's, it, I suppose the word is experiential. Maybe you could describe it formally then. Yes. Like, so it's very rapidly cut. You know, she cuts every three to 10 seconds max. Most scenes are just fragments. There are three or four different uh, three lines that she keeps returning to repeatedly to a uh, young girl sitting in the car, having a conversation where they talk a little shit with each other. Um, there's an onstage performance um, that has a kind of mixed media uh, uh, component as well as a live onstage presence that she keeps returning to. And there is an interview with a friend of hers that I'm pretty sure she shot for a different feature project that she's working on where this person talks about um, essentially misogyny in the uh, in the entertainment industry um, and self-care. Uh, there are repeated clips from uh, Naomi Campbell being interviewed on The Tyra Bank Show, also about trauma and self-care. Uh, and there are a lot of shots of people at the club, various clubs, partying. Um, and it does, it does have a very like online sharing stuff with my friends kind of thing. I do think of the works a little bit as like diaries that she makes for herself. And, um, the, the, the fact that they're, they're shown to others are, um, a necessary evil almost. (laughs) Like Mm, it feels like the kind of thing that would be great to have as an aid memoir for yourself and to scramble your own memories in a way that you could be surprised by them when you revisited them. But I don't, you know, a lot of, um, 
you know, the conception, I would say Fox Maxi and Sky Hupink are obviously the two biggest names in Native experimental filmmakers on the festival circuit right now. And I think they've both kind of talked about the idea that, you know, one of the wonderful things about experimental film that syncs up nicely with Native identity is, is, um, is eliminating the requirement to make oneself legible, mm-hmm. literally on a linguistic level and also formally. Um, so at a certain point, there's a certain level it's like, this is not for anyone else necessarily right at the same time it's obviously an extremely formally aggressive work you know it's impossible to um you know there's um vertical and horizontal split screens in the first five minutes she's overlaying like gifs of skeletons like boxing Mm. on top of things like there's a lot of shit happening but i think ultimately it is kind of a little bit of a celebration of self a little um talking up of self maybe you know in a in an affirmative sense uh, 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 affirmation of community in various quasi-hedonistic gu- hedonistic guises mm. uh, and just kind of like a very just somebody who's like a compulsive shooter <laughs> you know well I haven't seen this film uh, but my question is you know a lot of people make very personal work a lot of people keep diaries in whatever medium um, so what do you think makes her work stand out to the level where, you know, that she's obviously very acclaimed. Uh, I mean, she's a rising filmmaker, but she's already gathering a lot of acclaim. And it's a question I just have in general about highly personal work. Um, you know, how do you then, when you're watching like these kinds of movies, how do you distinguish between the ones that feel, I guess, so personal that it, you know, they're not necessarily for something you would program in a festival or write about and then works that feel like they are meant for an audience. And I guess you gestured at that with, you know, the what you were saying about Sky and Fox's, like this approach to almost sometimes uh, for like uh, resisting the urge to be legible to all. Um, but yeah, I guess I would I would just ask like what the cumulative impact of her choices is and, and why it's, um, like think, why I so think, many people dig it in, in put, to put it simply right I mean th- and one thing about Sky's work is that it often kind of explicitly engages with kind of more familiar traditions of like James Benning with the handwriting scrolling across the bottom of the screen or whatever and Fox's antecedents are a little more unclear to me they feel like you know she's coming from the online slash gallery space I think it's because they're fun you know when you're watching mm-hmm. these experimental film programs um, and I think especially at the the a turn to uh, perhaps a, a greater emphasis on a anthropological slash political uh, programming over the last few years at some of the major festivals and a turning away from the kind of more pure, pure mm. formalist work. And she offers you just like a lot to look at and a lot to listen to. There's a lot of fun music. It's, it's meant to be like hyper engaging, mm. I think. I think that is by design. So even if the three lines are personal, um, that the effect of it is supposed to be pretty bracing mm. and, um, and not, not heavy, I don't think. Um, there's not a, there's not a lot of I think it almost resists the kind of um, burden of like tragic representation or something you know yeah. like it's 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 a lot of people being celebratory a lot of the time mm. especially in this film as opposed to some of the others which are more political and angry um, and 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 go more into the into the, the into the pressures and, and traumas of, of of resistance and so on and so forth. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. 
question for for both of you apropos of this film and and also one i think we're going to talk about uh shortly um mary helena clark and mike gabisser's a common sequence which we're going to talk about in more depth in a second but uh but um in watching that film and i haven't seen the fox maxi film yet but i but i know her short work a bit and you know i've i've edited like interviews with her and so on so i know a little bit about how she sort of talks about her work and so on but in short like both it strikes me that both of these films kind of fit like fit this rubric of sort of like the non-sundance film at sundance um which um you know uh i don't know how like Basically, my question is kind of like is is concerning the validity of this idea of the Sundance because you know it's like like I've seen some very like sort of stereotypically kind of Sundance movies since I got here, but then there's also things like uh, a common sequence which um, you know could have premiered in you know the form expanded in Berlin or you know wherever. Um, so. I, it's not to say that I don't think that like the term uh, Sundance film is like is no longer valid, but it's like I don't know. Like the last time I was here in 2020, they were showing Pedro Costa's Vita Vitalina Varela in uh, the New Frontier section. I guess yeah. before it died and also before it was resuscitated. Um, so yeah, I just I just like like does this is this even like a, a helpful way to think of a type of film anymore? <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't really have an answer to that. And I do think that unless I'm programming myself, it's something I try to not go with an idea of a Sundance film, a Berlin film, because, you know, obviously tropes emerge over time. But the three times that I've been at Sundance and then I've done two virtual editions, there's always this discussion about some two or three films. Like the past five years, there's always two or three films where people are like, this doesn't feel like a Sundance film right. at all. Like there was, um, this is not a burial, it's a resurrection. I remember that being sort of uh, unexpected. And so, you know, I think the outlier is also a trope and there's almost a way in which the exception confirms the rule. And like the rule is also born of like how we talk about these movies. Totally. And I was thinking about, you know, I think, Vadim, I think what you said is, is really important. Like these movies are not being given maybe the same space. The same space. And maybe that's because they people think that there's not gonna be an audience for it. Like maybe the programming or the operations team here thinks that they're not gonna fill enough seats. So there there's these like only one screening or two screenings and they're kind of remote. But I'm still really actually excited they're playing at Sundance because yes, Deborah Stratman, Mary Helena Clark, they could all premiere at Berlin but they might not break into the new audiences that they might hear. And maybe I'm being optimistic, but I would hope that there are people who've never heard of their work who are going to these screenings, however difficult the screenings are to get to, or who are just becoming more familiar with their names because they're part of the Sundance lineup. And so they're able to now maybe break into an audience that isn't primed already to expect their new film. So this is like my very Pollyanna hopeful <laughs> response. Well, I have to say I'm really skeptical about that because like, as I said earlier, like most people I've been talking to have no idea that this stuff is here. Like that's, that's just kind of the thing. Well, that's why we're talking about right. it then. And, but we are, we are, we are um, viewers of a certain stripe. Shall we, say? we are part I of the core. Yeah. I, I think, you know, a really kind of almost maybe perverse seeming analogy here that someone had pointed out to me about can main competition is every year main competition can maybe has like two truly like 
out there um, titles. Mm. And they're often from like filmmakers that have already been accepted, you know, and, and, like better establishment and so are given a little more yeah. leeway. But, you know, the main competition of Cannes is, is explicitly not really for that. Mm. And so those outliers do operate and they always do seem like outliers. And I think here it's kind of the same thing. I mean, setting, setting aside even the new frontier stuff you know the question of like is there such a thing as a recognizable Sundance film absolutely there <laughs> yeah, is, like, yeah. and they may not look like the Sundance film of 1995-1996 like the tropes may have evolved a little bit but the, the 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 things the fundamental elements that are there that are um let's say not enforced but perhaps not so gently suggested in the, the many many programs that they run including screenwriter jobs lead to a, a homogeneity of uh, especially screenwriting beats um, uh, certain miniature tropes that reoccur and flourish yeah. within the subgenre, but don't actually relate to like the broader cinematic landscape. Um, the kind of aura of calling card, calling card. Uh, absolutely. And, um, and honestly, a certain kind of visual indifference that's often the norm mm. in these things. Um, and I, I do think that, and that, you know, and it's, you know, sorry, not the bumpers again, the story thing, the thing about story, story, story. It's the word yeah, that Sundance that really word, leads into. That's so true. Now story and form obviously don't have to be contradictory. They don't have to, they, you know, ideally not, but you know, American film is often not really grounded in a rigorous theoretical understanding of the medium. Yeah, and I think form. Sundance really does reinforce that like story forward, empathy forward, character forward yeah. um, in a very kind of reductive way. Um, Absolutely. And actually, in response to that, I know we were going to talk about a common sequence mm-hmm. and we'll get to that. But I wanted to talk about polite society. All right. Which Dan and I saw yesterday. <laughs> and because, you know, this uh, the tropes thing and this idea of a certain formal homogeneity, the, the thing that kind of really annoyed me about polite society, which in brief... It's directed by Nida Manzoor, who's the creator of We Are Lady Parts, um, a TV show I've not seen, which is very popular. And it's about this South Asian immigrant family in London and basically about the two sisters. The younger one is in high school and is an aspiring stunt woman. And the older sister has just dropped out of art school and is kind of depressed and basically gets is courted by this like very handsome, rich young man whose mother is aggressively looking for a bride for her son. And there's then like a get out kind of narrative emerges where the younger sister suspects that something is a foul. And we don't know if something is a foul or if she's just like unwilling to let go of her sister, but eventually something is, (laughs) you know, something very bad is happening, um, which is revealed late enough in the movie that there's a lot of, just like sci-fi horror evocation without there being... Yeah, because yeah. I almost wanted to like qualify. Is that something... Yeah, it turns out something is amiss, but it's like, you know, in, in the most sort of like otherworldly like, yeah, I mean, like it, it goes, way possible. Right, so like for two-thirds of the movie, you're like, you know, is this just... And, and I liked that it's using these tropes of South Asian diaspora films, like the moms, like hunting for, you know, brides for their sons and, and you know, pressure to do uh, pursue certain kinds of careers. It's like taking those and then playing with them and then uh, and turning it and kind of making us wonder if this is just like the things that the uh, Rhea, the protagonist suspects are just like, 
aspects of culture she's not ready to uh, accept or if there is actually something creepier going on so that's like two thirds of the movie and then the explanation is like so far out yeah it's like this crazy well the film also establishes that she has like a lively imagination and right. like even just at the level of like what she wants to do with her she wants to become a stunt woman and yeah. her the training and, and sort of ridiculous uh sort of preparations that she makes towards that all feels like very fantastical it's not you know what i mean right um uh and then and then yeah the film does and you this. think that's all a red herring which actually i really liked like i liked the first half of the movie because i was like this is fun it's you know it's uh, you know yeah that these these creepy elements are constantly turning out to be red herrings and that kind of gives us a window into this young character's mind but then <laughs> all her <laughs> suspicions are confirmed <laughs> but the thing i was going to say about the movie which i enjoyed to some extent uh it is there are like bits that are quite funny there are some like very very good bollywood homages that like most people here won't get but just like got gave me a lot of satisfaction um but you know it has that like really annoying familiar sundance quirky comedy formal style one of the things that it does that like has started to irritate me so much even on tv is you is this style of cutting where you have these like repeated smash cuts between scenes that contrast in tone so there'll be like a really noisy scene and it'll smash cut to like silence or something that's very over the top and you smash cut to something deadpan or the or a character says something like oh i'm going to be so chill and you smash cut to them being not chill you know this it's just and i do think there's some kind of factory element to this kind of style like a lot of tv shows have this as well and it's just i it just starts grating on you and it feels i mean we discussed this dan it feels like a kids or teens movie yeah i was going to i mean um and and maybe this is like in a weird way like kind of related to what we were uh you know what we were just talking about like the notion of a of a of a sundance movie um uh because yeah no i i completely agree that this film you know has a lot of the dna of sort of the the very uh sort of stereotypical sundance uh item but it also like when we were talking about you know number 1 yeah we were talking about how it's like it like this film should like probably be marketed as a film for kids. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I don't, I don't that mean that not is suggestive of something larger. Right. I feel. Right. Right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I, and, and also it's like, I don't mean that like dismissively, you yeah. know, um, but it also like, you know, so what it's in the, it's in world dramatic. It's in midnight, midnight. which I oh, guess right, is right, like right. a okay. little more, I mean, there's a lot more playful stuff in there, but I, and I, I, I should clarify, I don't mean this in a pejorative way. Like this is the kind of movie I would, I did love when I was in high school, sure. like Scott Pilgrim, you know, it, yeah. it has that kind of vibe, but it, there is, it is also just, you know, it's not really trying to push boundaries formally. Right. And that annoys me because this is clearly a kind of, I mean, there is a lot of creativity in the film. This is a director with the kind of, I mean, the way it plays with cultural and diaspora aspects did feel like kind of new to me. But why not try to be funny in kind of newer <laughs> ways? <laughs> yeah, and well, I was gonna—I mean, I was gonna say, uh, you know, apropos this idea of it as a as a, like a film for kids, yeah. like is that like, um, and and in relation to this idea of the Sundance film, is that like when we were we were talking about it, and it was, you know, it's like, um, and I, I don't think this would constitute kind of like a some kind of 
curatorial gesture of like ghettoizing it or something mm-hmm. but like like some a, a section like a uh, generation in berlin would be like a perfect place for it like this film would be like the biggest thing in generation you know absolutely um, yeah and and that would that would also probably be a great audience for it i mean maybe it maybe sundance is a great audience for it i don't know but um but you yeah. know we'll see yeah it's it's basically it's like it has the language of a lot of content that young people probably consume right now. And so it would feel familiar and legible to them. But I don't, I feel like <laughs> directors should be bolder. I mean, there's, an, this is a sidebar, but I also think that there shouldn't be any such thing as a kid's movie. I mean, there are some legitimate, you know, legitimate ideas around like what kids want to watch as opposed to what their parents want to watch. But, you know, I think children and young people can be amused in a variety of ways <laughs> that that remain unexplored. Um, but yeah, I just, it was that thing, Vadim, I, that you were saying where I was like, this is actually kind of a fun movie, but it's just, it just feels so homogenous, you know, and that really bothered me about it. But a common sequence is not, it's, it's about homogeneity in a certain <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, for sure. A common sequence is a new feature uh, co-directed by Mary Helena Clark, a fairly well-known um, contemporary avant-garde filmmaker, uh, and Mike Bisser. Mike Bisser has uh, collaborated with her as a cinematographer before and is also the cinematographer on Frank B. Ross's movies. Perfect. Oh, yeah. There you go. So this guy, yeah, so... so uh, it's very interesting, <laughs> very, very interesting uh, filmmaker. Anyway, um, uh, the, it, it's like a triptych uh, about, uh, I think, the concept of conservation uh, and how it's manifest in these uh, three different contexts. So the first, the first section of the film concerns these nuns in Miwakan, in Mexico, who make a syrup that's derived from uh, a type of salamander, the achoque, that's uh, indigenous to the area and uh, is previously, uh, I guess, probably still technically endangered, um, just given the statistically and yeah it's like uh it deals with their uh breeding uh these salamanders uh and making this um sort of uh, theoretically like health healthful making uh syrup um that's and the idea is like predicated upon the fact that these salamanders uh regenerate lost limbs and and can, i think they say that you, they can even regenerate like parts of their brains after like traumatic like brain injuries yeah um and then the the second section uh deals with um i guess uh, i guess you would you would say they're like a uh bio bio genetically modified like apples, apples. <laughs> yeah seedless apples yeah. and then also technologies for picking them yeah right yeah, yeah yeah and then the and then the third section deals more with with robotics and and the human genome and um the idea of like uh, uh, this information that's kind of uh, intrinsic to just like human being in the first place um the, i mean i think it's a visually like pretty amazing uh, experience um on film it's like a really really uh really varied in, and also like varied from section to section um the first i i found the first section of the film doesn't really look like the second section yeah. doesn't look look like the third it'll be recognized i mean given the people who are who made it um, you know like people who know uh, mary helena clark's previous work it's gonna it'll look familiar but i think there's like a real um there's a real ambition to what the film's like trying to attend to 
and it's like kind of refusal to like it doesn't it do, it's not trying to like shoehorn it all into some like simplistic political message which also makes it like stand out in the context of Sundance which I th- I think a lot of films are very much about that mm-hmm. about that here. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think that so the film is about the all the things that Dan you just described. I mean they're they're all in some way dealing with the idea of the commons and so the film is exploring how um in each of these specific cases um the commons are being like privatized or there's like that kind of negotiation going on so with the salamanders there's this really interesting uh comment about how there's research into those salamanders funded by the department of defense the mm-hmm. us dod uh because they want to use it um for the military you know when soldiers are injured like they hope that like humans can regenerate limbs and that like mm-hmm. and i found that I, I don't know i mean it's an obvious thing how much the military how much money and resources the military has but the fact that this is like instead of being like this could change humanity it's like this could change warfare and right. <laughs> make us like much more efficient uh soldiers and then with the apple picking sequence it's the idea of like how things that things like fruit are patented but also how the technology to pick them is developed and patented and so how that what the relationship between is between human and sort of na- human labor and natural products and their patenting and this sort of like fine print that allows certain things to be patented right because naturally occurring i elements or fruit there's something where Certain natural things cannot be patented, but there, if there's a certain level of synthetic intervention, they can. Well, right. The the guy who, the guy who's explaining the patent process uh, couches in terms of like it just has to do with like the uniqueness of the of the patent. Like that's right. that's that's the criteria for right. whether for whether the government <laughs> says like yeah, this is yeah. your property now. Yeah. And the human genome part is really interesting because there's a section where a native um, scholar is talking about how um, like. Native Americans need to protect themselves from data mining because Native American genes contain a lot more information than, you know, a lot of other genes in America because they've been, like, here for a long time and how that can be a really crucial resource in, like, genome sequencing and things like that. And so it's it's this very multifaceted look at what it means um, for things that seem natural and that should kind of belong to us or even if you think about it differently, that don't necessarily even belong to us. Like we are part of them in a certain sense, or we're part of this like larger ecosystem get embroiled in the language of privacy and ownership. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I, 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 and maybe what, maybe what I'm about to say is like implicit in what you've already been saying, but like, um, but yeah, I think the film also is just dealing with like the, the, whatever tether there is between just the, like fundamentally between the concept of conservation and the functioning of capitalism, right. um, which plays out in like different ways in each section, you know, in the first, in the first, you know, it's the nuns are selling the syrup uh, to make ends meet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're, uh, and that when the native scholars talking about this stuff, there's a slide and I wrote down what it said, the title, it said altruism or data mining question mark, right. which I, uh, you know, which is really interesting. Cause like there are, that's kind of the struggle, right? Like, ethically you want to like be part of the commons but if you're in a par- in a system where you know you are appropriated for the profit of others you know how do you kind of ethically square that with the ideal of altruism yeah so 
I think the film gets into a lot of these ethical, political, even spiritual ideas mm-hmm. without, and, and it has a lot of, um, I should say, citations, actually, a lot of like excerpts from scientific papers are read out in voiceover without feeling super theoretically dense. I mean, no. it you know, it feels very, I hate to use the word accessible, but, you know, it feels like something... Um, it just doesn't feel dense. It's beautiful to look at, even as, as it's juggling different forms. There's ethnography. Uh, there's like diagrammatic images. And also it's very open-ended, which is what I liked about it. You know, it doesn't, even though it has this political intent, it doesn't have a clear political answer to the questions it raises. And right. it's kind of looking at all the different sides in, yeah, a, a kind of... Very admirably, not just open-ended, but with an attitude that says, we we don't know, like, we're not, we, we don't know enough either. And I think that's kind of rare for a documentary to do that. I feel that documentaries are often very prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a real sense of, like, urgent curiosity and questioning here um yeah it's neither like it's neither like a tribute to nor a critique of like the idea of conservation it's more sort of like just it's like almost like doing um this kind of autopsy on this idea that we like take for granted and just kind of file away like oh yeah that 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 sounds like a good a politically good thing that you know but like but the film i yeah like like i think we're both saying the film is not satisfied with with that such a like pat answer it, yeah. it, it digs a lot deeper and and yeah and like you said it's it's a it's really fun to look at it's both yeah. it's at once uh, uh sensual and geometric I yes would say. great way of putting it well i think that we should probably wrap up now um we all have screenings to go to and we covered not only a wide range of films uh, but also questions about you know uh existential questions about the Sundance Film Festival and the Sundance Film and form and story. So thank you both so much for joining. Hey, uh, my pleasure. Thank you both. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 